Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on a rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. Hi, welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast. I'm Horatio Ruiz and my guest today is Anthony Zhang, co-founder and CEO of VinoVest. VinoVest curates a collection of investable wines at different price points. With more than $55 million in investments, Today, we'll look at the future of the company as it expands into whiskey and Anthony's journey as an entrepreneur. Thanks for being here, Anthony. Horatio, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here as well. Anthony, we have so much to discuss today. Thank you for joining us. I, I kind of want to start, though, uh, you know, in, in learning about your background and uh, your history. really want to start even before your college days because you are what, I mean, someone would consider a serial entrepreneur. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I've been, uh, been building businesses pretty much my whole life. Did you find that, you know, prior to, you know, when you were maybe a, a kid, a young kid, a teenager, you had that, that entrepreneurial DNA in you? I think it was always a goal of mine to build a business. I just didn't really know what path it would take to get there. You know, I kind of thought it would be like a get into a good school and then get a good resume with internships to get a good job after school and then go get an MBA. And then maybe after that, I'd have enough money to start a business. But obviously, as we'll talk about more on our conversation today, it didn't really turn out that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like life kind of hands you curveballs for sometimes for better and worse, right? And uh, something I also want to get into it with you about taking that traditional path, you know, and kind of taking that path where you kind of are almost called to take that. But your first big company or your first big founding was at USC, where you started a company called Envoy Now. Yeah, so Envoy Now was my, my first real business. It was a food delivery app for college campuses, much like your DoorDashes and Uber Eats of the world. What really made us special was that we were only available to students. So the app was gated. You needed the EDU email of your school to even be a member. And that meant that our supply network, as well as our demand network, was all students and teachers. So that enabled an extra layer of trust and community within these deliveries and got really lucky, honestly, with my first business. I had the opportunity to pitch Mark Cuban and uh, get my first investment offer from him. And a few weeks later, I had the opportunity to pitch Peter Thiel. And uh, he was running or is still running a program called the Thiel Fellowship where he literally hands you $100,000, no strings attached on the equity side, but the only stipulation is that you can't be in school. So with kind of the blessing of, of these two folks who I looked up to and respected my whole life, was able to have the freedom to be able to drop out of college and, and really take my first business seriously and put everything I had into it. I know that you pitched uh, Mark Burnett and Mark Cuban, right? At a, like a, a Shark Tank type of show? Yeah, he was uh, actually at our school for a guest speaker series. But to your point, Mark Burnett was there and he's the executive producer of the show. So it was an impromptu live recorded version of, of Shark Tank. And I read somewhere that he offered to, at that point, when you pitched him Envoy Now, he pitched you $100,000 for a 5% share. So he he gave you a $2 million valuation right there and then. 
yeah, then he took it back and uh, it was a, it was a 10% share. So that was the deal that we ended with, but either way that, you know, having a business that's worth in the seven figures to a 19 year old, that was like the biggest number I could have thought of. I was like, someone thinks my business is worth a million dollars. It was such a crazy moment for me to, to realize that what I was building, which was just really a, a side hustle, you know, it was actually worth something. Yeah. And, and so then you're, you're faced with this. Was it a dilemma? You know, cause you're 19 years old, you have this idea of, you know, Hey, I'm going to get a degree. Uh, I'm going to take this route and, you know, and, and be successful. But all of a sudden there it's, it's been kind of derailed. Like, you know, the company's successful beyond your, you know, your wildest fantasies, right? So early. Was, was that a tough decision or something that you're like, you know, uh, you know, this is something I have to go for? It was absolutely something I have to go for because the opportunity cost of not taking that chance was just something that I, I don't think I could have, you know, stomached. I was very fortunate to be able to meet a lot of entrepreneurs who were maybe a year or two older than me that had also made that decision and talking with, with them and you know, their parents talking with, with my parents and all of that kind of helped us make a decision that this was college is always going to be there for you. Your credits are, can be paused and your degree will still be there, but this opportunity will not if you don't take it. Absolutely. I was kind of curious, like if you had a, a student or you're in a position where younger people come to you uh, for advice, is it something where you're, you're almost always going to tell them, you know, go for it? Or, or is it something that, that you know, you, you just got to weigh each situation individually? Definitely individually. Like you mentioned, I do get a lot of folks who are either in some in high school even, but most in college that are thinking about dropping out and thinking about running their own business and pursuing their dreams early. And I think my number one piece of advice is that, are you able to still stay in school and do what you want to do? If not, do you have the means to support yourself if you wanted to take a semester off? A lot of people can get sucked into the romance or the glamour of being like a startup CEO, right? That's something that a lot of people look up to, but the reality is that most of us are going to fail. And even those of us who are successful see a lot of failure. And I think that is something that you need to become more comfortable with before you make such a big decision. Some good advice there. Never an easy answer, right? But at some point you have to weigh the practical with what could be. Could you describe to me, you know, at, the, at its peak, where you were at with Envoy now, like how many people were working for you or who you're working with and how far along did you get you know, where you would say that the, the company was thriving. Yeah. So we built that business over the course of almost four years. Right before we got acquired, we were in 22 markets nationwide. We had a little over 60 team members and I think almost 2,000 actual like student drivers, or we call them envoys, actually delivering on the platform. And we had hundreds of thousands of students using the app. Wow. So it was thriving. Then you, you ended up getting acquired. And this is kind of where I, I kind of want to you know, go on the side on a side road here, kind of in the middle, right? Or you were, I would say maybe in the middle at some point you were at a, at a pool party and you kind of dove into a pool. Yeah. I, uh, this was about five years ago. Now I suffered a spinal cord injury during that. For those of you who are not familiar with that, what a spinal cord injury is, you essentially you, you break your spine, uh, and your spinal cord, which controls, you know, not just your, your motor movements, but all of the things that go along with it, your feeling, your sensation, a lot of your kind of things that keep you alive. And instantly I, I was uh, paralyzed from the neck down, was on a ventilator for almost four months after that. And 
pretty much had to relearn every single thing I knew in life. So it was almost like your, I mean, obviously your life changed in an instant. How did you balance that? Your, your, you know, your own kind of personal setback, you know, if, if I could, a tragedy almost, if I could say that, you know, with this thriving business that you have, this, this responsibility, right. That you, that you, you, you have because you've created such a successful business, you know, did you feel it was overwhelming? You know, did you feel like, no, this is, this, I'm going to get this done. What was your mindset? Yeah. I mean, at, at first it was complete shock and, and denial of what happened, right? I had no idea that how the severity of, of a spinal cord injury, you know, I never met anyone who had my type of accident or condition. I thought it was something just like a broken bone or a car crash, right? Like you, you can heal bones, you can do rehabilitation to get back there. But I, what I didn't know was that the spinal cord doesn't really heal like that. My condition is, is permanent. I'm still in a wheelchair today and have very limited movement in my upper extremities and nothing in my lower extremities. And having that diagnosis brought to me, it took a lot to process. So for the first few months, um, I was just trying to adjust, you know, fight for my life and be able to get to the point where I can even breathe on my own again. So the business was the last thing from my mind. Uh, my co-founders had kind of taken over in, in my capacity and uh, we're, we're running the business, but I really didn't know if I would ever even be able to run a business, much less even get out of the hospital. Like what's my life going to even look like? Um, and it wasn't until I want to say five, four or five months after my injury until um, I was strong enough to even be able to use a smartphone again. And from that, I had a desire to at least be like, hey, well, I was a CEO running a business at one point. How's this business doing? Uh, I just wasn't there yet un until months later. And that's that's really what honestly having that hunger to be like, Hey, like I actually do want to go back to seeing if I can run a business. Of course, it's going to be a lot different than I used to before, but I want to try. Right. And that took me months to get to that point. I guess I kind of want to delve a little, even just a little bit deeper into that, like, like that mindset, right. Of I'm going to come back and I'm going to do this. What changed in you? Like, like how did, how did your outlook change? Did your um, kind of Maybe this, the way you saw things personally or kind of on, on different level change? It was really, I think at a, at a crossroads, I had to make a decision because my co-founders wanted to actually return all of our investor money and shut down the business. Um, so I disagreed with that decision and I had to come back as CEO. No one else was going to run the company if it was just you know all the co-founders had left. So... For me, I was like, I want to see how far I can push myself and I want to be able to still do something that I used to love. Right? Thankfully, my, you know, don't have any damage to my brain from that accident. So I, I can still make decisions as a CEO. I just need a lot of help with the actual day-to-day -day execution and, and being able to communicate with my team. So that was really the turning point. My co-founders came to me. They said, hey, like, we want to leave. I said, no. And they said, well, we can't have no one running the company. And that's when I told them, I was like, hey, I want to run the company. At that point, the company had had some setbacks. And from what I understand, right, you were able to build it back up. Yeah, that's exactly right. We you know, weren't in a great place after me being out of commission for six months. But what I did realize was that I just didn't want to give up on the company. I, we 
poured almost four years of our life into at that point and just to roll over and, and give up just didn't seem right to me. I owed it to myself. I owed it to our investors. I owed it to all of the employees that we had brought on board to be able to give ourselves one last shot at a good outcome. And that was, I think, what really fueled and drove all of us to turn the business around was that, you know, setbacks happen, disappointments happen, but it's really how you respond to those and want to be able to show to yourselves and to others that, hey, like we tried as hard as we could and we gave we gave it the time of day and the effort and attention that this company deserved, given how much of a time and money investment people had put into it. So I thought that we had, you know, just really seen it through the right way and that thankfully we're able to to have multiple buyout offers with ongoing now. Awesome. And then so we mentioned that uh, you know, you're kind of a serial entrepreneur. You've, you've always had this dream of, of creating your own business. And the next thing was uh, know your VC. Can you describe what what that was? Because I know that, that that's also kind of like a, it came about from, I guess, a, a personal incident between you and a friend. Yeah, know your VC is a, essentially a Yelp for rating angel investors. And it really started because because we heard all this terrible news from, from Silicon Valley VCs, from female and other minority background founders on how these venture capitalists were really just saying and, and doing horrible things, you know, not only from a discrimination standpoint, but, you know, even bordering on harassment and assault. And to me, as, you know, as a very, very fortunate, a male was able to come with uh, no connections, but through Mark Cuban and Peter Thiel was able to quickly fast track myself Fundraising is always hard, but it was never to the point where I felt like I was being disrespected or I felt that I was unsafe because of who I was. And that just really made me feel so strongly that there needed to be more transparency in this space where a lot of the deals are done behind closed doors, right? It was, saw a lot of parallels between what was going on in Silicon Valley and how the whole Harvey Weinstein scandal broke down. And um, we just thought there needed to be a website where people could share their honest opinions and, and encounters. And that's how Mary VC came to life. In reading about that, I never would have thought that you could, in essence, kind of hold some, I guess, pretty wealthy um, angel investors, right? Uh, hold them accountable almost. And in some ways, it's almost go back three, four years. It would be kind of unheard of, right? Absolutely. I mean, we really wanted to to do something that hadn't really been done before. So you have that that company, but then that also gets acquired, correct? Mm -hmm. And so then it kind of brings us into uh, VinoVest, which is kind of like your you know your baby. I know you're a co-founder. How did you come across this idea of of, of wine as an investment? And um, and kind of what, what was your background with wine? Did, was it something that you were already had a deep knowledge of, or something that you kind of have picked up along the way? With VinoVest, I had really no experience with investing in wine. However, what I did know was that there was value with these old wines, these rare wines, because I'd grown up in Beijing and Hong Kong. From a cultural standpoint, wine, especially wine from, from France, from key regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy were just a huge part of society, right? You, you wanna go to a, um, you know, a family friend's house or you're looking to do a business dinner, right? The, the gift that you bring to them at, at these dinners or these events really does reflect 
your level of respect for them. And that's when I knew these wines really had something more than just getting older and changing taste and flavor. What I didn't know was how strong of an asset class it was. I remember a few years back before I started on Boy Now, just researching like, hey, what are the ultra wealthy people investing in these days? And you know, kind of no surprise at the top of that list was like art, wine, whiskey, jewelry, and all these sort of luxury asset classes or passion asset classes as, as people call them. And I was like, hey, I've, I've always been interested in wine. I'm no expert, but it sounds like a really fun way to be able to dive into a potential passion while also making some money on the side. And after I spent a few weeks just researching the space and talking to folks that were a lot more experienced that had been collecting for years, maybe even decades, I realized why wine investing is thought of as such an exclusive or sort of behind closed door things is that it is, there's so many barriers to entry, right? From, from storage to the right knowledge of which wines are investable versus not. And then the access, right? A lot of these wines are not available publicly. You need to know someone who knows someone to be able to get your hands on the bottle, even if you can afford it. And all those problems, you know, it stems back to, I think, just giving everybody a fair chance, making things knowledge accessible. You know, that was the same problem I tried to solve with Know Your VC in a very different space. But you know, at the core of it, VinoVest existed and I wanted it to exist because we wanted to bring more accessibility into this really exclusive, elite, closed off asset class like Fine Line. What was that like? I know you mentioned previously fundraising and how that's almost like a, a, a constant. How do you go about fundraising uh, for a company that's going to start offering these investments in, in, some, of, in some, some of the most expensive, you know, one of the most expensive asset classes? How do you go about acquiring all these great wines from all these different regions across the world? Yeah. So for VinoVest, all of it was just from my own experiences at first, right? I didn't have room to store wines in, in my apartment here in Los Angeles. So I reached out and found professional storage facilities all around the world next to key grind growing regions. I didn't really know what to pick for wines. So my co-founder and I, we designed an algorithm and we put that onto the wine market data and back tested it. We didn't know now that we're like, all right, the algorithm can tell us which wines to buy. We didn't have access to those wines, right? We didn't know where to buy them and how to buy them. And that's when a little bit of luck came into play. My next door neighbors in the apartment complex, their daughter and son-in-law are both master sommeliers. For those of you who don't know what a master som is, it's essentially the highest level certification that you can obtain in the wine industry. There's less than 300 people ever who have even obtained that level of title. So these folks were wine industry experts, veterans, like they are very much so ingrained with the top of the top. And after I told them about my concept for VinoVest, they were, they were excited. And having that industry buying was, was key for us when it came to sourcing these wines, especially as a new company. I got to go back. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, hard work, skill, and all that's all that you need, all that. But then, you know, to, to have the son and daughter, right? Yeah. Of the next generation being uh, these people that there's there's less than 300 of in the world, right? That's a pretty cool thing to happen to you, you know? Yeah. What are the odds, right? So especially in a business like, like wine investing, it's not like any Silicon Valley entrepreneur has this sort of chance encounter. Uh, so definitely consider myself very lucky. So let's talk about what you've built up so far. You have wines from all, all around the world. 
let's talk about it from on, on your side, right? What are the offerings? What are you what are you looking to um, constantly kind of acquire? Uh, does that change over time? And like you said, you have all these different regions. Do you have contacts in different parts of the world? That's exactly how it is. Even though VinoVest is based in LA, we've got our contacts and our, our infrastructure all around the world. So if our wine is bought in Napa, we're storing it in Napa if the wine is bought in Bordeaux, we're storing it in the Bordeaux warehouse and vice versa. So uh, we want to, by default, keep the wine as close to where it's produced and stored as possible. That minimizes any sort of risk around the storage of the wine. And it also helps us from you know, a environmental as well as a cost-saving basis. Definitely. And you mentioned also your algorithm um, that you developed with your co-founder, does that get constantly uh, tweaked or changed? Is that kind of how you get the recommendations for the investors? Yeah, so we do. We, we want to be able to always update our algorithm according to new movements in the market, according to new things that we learn that can potentially help our strategy. So it's something that we're constantly tweaking to be able to have better returns for our investors. So now going on the investor side, let's say you know you, uh, someone's looking to sign up with VinoVest. They have three options, correct? They have where they invest a thousand dollars, they invest five thousand dollars, or they can invest you know fifty thousand or more if they want. Is that right? Uh, so you can invest any amount between a thousand and up. What those plans are, we have plans at the ten k, fifty k, and two fifty k level. They bring additional benefits, uh, reduced fees, additional experiences, and then also a different level of service. Right? The the entry level uh, starter plan is is fully automated. You're working with a robo-advisor, we're making all the decisions for you. But when you start to get into those higher plans, you get a dedicated portfolio manager. And if you want to be able to source something special and have a little bit more control over your investing experience, that that's where we tend to see more investors gravitate toward. And you actually, the, the investors, when they, when they go into those different levels, they actually own a whole bottle, right? The bottles of wine themselves. They don't own a fraction of the bottles. They don't own a share of the bottles. They own the bottles themselves. Exactly. So this is a pure investment into the wine bottle, the wine case. You're not sharing with anybody. You own it. You, you can actually even drink it if you wanted to. It, it's real and it's all yours. Also, what I saw on, on there is you have different also risk tolerances, right? So a potential investor will uh, answer the questionnaire and they'll be asked a risk preference and then they'll put in a, a certain amount. What are the differences in wines? Uh, if you can if you can tell us, like, let's say I'm a, I'm a conservative investor and I want to put in uh, into the $5,000 fund. What's the difference in, in the type of wines in a conservative uh, portfolio for $5,000 as opposed to uh, a risky one, I guess, uh, for $5,000? Yeah, great question. So just like stocks and bonds, you know, traditional investments, it's your equivalent of like a blue chip wine. These would be wines that are maybe from Bordeaux or Burgundy or a very established wine region. The price increases are very steady, low volatility and very predictable. And on the other hand, if you want to go more speculative or risky, there are your equivalent of emerging market wines, right? These are maybe newer winemakers or newer wine regions or newer wines from an established winery that offer a little bit more upside, but with more risk. So that's how we look to balance people's risk appetites. Um, we also take into account their time horizon as well as the dollar amount, right? If you're if you're putting in $5,000, we're not gonna be buying you a, a $5,000 bottle of wine because you wouldn't be diversified. We wanna give, a, give you lower price point wines that can give you exposure into different regions, into different 
vintages so that even within the asset class of wine, you can still enjoy diversification. So let's say I have this fund, it's at $5,000 and I check back, let's say six months later, and I find that a couple of my bottles have appreciated, I don't know, by a couple hundred dollars. At that point, do you have the ability to sell your bottle? How, how liquid is it? Because you, you know you can, you can take the bottle and you can consume it yourself. So that in, in that sense, it's very liquid. Uh, but how liquid is it if I want to sell off the investment? Yeah. So if you want to be able to sell, we do have an open market. So we can sell your wine to anybody else who's a counterparty on our platform, whether it be a retailer, a high-end restaurant, another wine collector. Um, and it's, I would say, much like an open market, we can see all the active bids and offers on, on any given wine and be able to and exit your positions that way if you choose to. And what, what are the price appreciations? How do you track those? How do you track whether or not a, a, a certain wine or brand has, has started to appreciate or even depreciate? Yeah, great question. So we track all sales all around the world. So to us, you know, a sale is the same as a trade, right? It's somebody selling a bottle of wine to another person. And we want to be able to track and normalize all those data points that are happening, whether it be for consumption or investment, right? And that helps us be able to then in turn give investors a more up-to-date and accurate mark-to-market. So for example, if I sold somebody else the same bottle of wine that you have for 300 bucks a bottle, that's the updated mark-to-market, right? That's the most recent transaction that's happened that can help you determine what you can reasonably expect for your wine too. Is that related? Because I saw you have a, the, the index fund, right? Of a, you put a hundred different wines and you use that to also kind of track, I guess, the whole wine industry, right? And it's, it's appreciation. I know it's a little bit different here. All these data points go into kind of tracking the historical value of these wines. Exactly. So that one is very much so if you want a broader sense of like, hey, how's the wine market doing, right? Just like there's an S&P 500, look at the, the greatest 100 wineries and the wines they produce and are able to then track those prices on the secondary market. How has that gone with the, the investors? Who are your, uh, your investors right now? Are they, are they retail investors, kind of individuals? Or are you beginning to see bigger, I guess, companies or funds kind of show interest in what you're building? Yeah, so it's it's both. We've got those two segments where the retail investors, you know, they're using our platform and are able to then self-direct and be able to put in however much money they want. And then on the other hand, we've got the more so institutional side, your RAs, family offices that are managing money on behalf of others and looking for wine as a means of diversification. Do you see uh, one market getting bigger than the other or growing faster than the other? I think for us, we're really seeing explosion on the retail side. I think for RAs and other institutional investors, even though the dollar amount is larger, right? there's just less of them out there. We could get a million users and maybe get 100 RAs, but maybe those 100 RAs are actually putting in more money than those million users combined. Yeah. So there is that sort of gut dichotomy there where some of them... The big clients are are worth more, but there's just going to be less of them. And then you guys have recently expanded, right? Do uh, you find yourself that you're always kind of in the middle of a fundraise because there's always the next thing and then the next in, in, in the sense that, you know, you want to grow the business, you want to get uh, more investors, but also like, are there certain trends that you're spotting um, and, and that, that you kind of want to grow into different areas? Yeah, for us, like we're really using the, the capital that we raised to, to just build a better customer experience. We're still very early and you think that really proud of that we launched about a month ago is our mobile app, which is just another step of making 
investing in wine that much more accessible. Um, and when we look at opportunities, not only are we looking at uh, different opportunities within um, our own user base, whether it be going global or targeting other segments of the market, but we also see value in being able to build a reputable brand in, in this sort of wine and spirits category. Um, so one thing that we will be launching next year is, is whiskey investing. And like wine, whiskey enjoys a lot of the same uh, price and return dynamics, but also is plagued by a lot of the same accessibility problems, right? Who, who's going to have space in their home to store a giant cask of whiskey? How do they get their hands on that whiskey? How do they accurately price it? Who do they sell it to, right? Those are, those are all problems that we've solved with VinoVest um, and built expertise in that we can then be able to translate into the playbook for an adjacent asset. I know that, uh, you know, whiskey and wine, they kind of, you know, they go together, right? They're fine, you know, investments in, in, in kind of like spirits or, or, or fine wines. But from what I understand, right, whiskey is almost even even more difficult, like like even proving the provenance and, and keeping track of the product sometimes. Can you talk about the challenges in going from wine to whiskey or do you find that they're actually, you know, it's pretty relatable? For the most part, they are very relatable. You know, provenance is a problem in the wine world in any sort of luxury good world as well. Uh, knowing where that asset is from, uh, storage and insurance are also big problems. And I think the other thing is accurately valuing, right? If you have a limited edition bottling where there's only 200 of them ever, how do you make good price comparisons and be, be data-driven with your analysis? So those are all really interesting challenges that we're running into every day on both the wine and on our exploration of the whiskey side. Yeah, it's funny because we've done a couple of analysis on alternative assets about, you know, with very expensive whiskeys. And we did one recently and there was maybe like one comp, right? In the last year, uh, two, two and a half years, Rally was fractionalizing a Karuizawa uh, whiskey. You know, and we're looking at it and we're looking at it and we come to realize like there's only been one sale and it was, it was a, a, an auction. You know, it wasn't even like a private sale or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's some some of this stuff is so rare, right? And and some of it is so new, right? Because it's been stored for so many years. It's a fascinating kind of space. It is, and it, it forces you to get creative, right? When when you only have one comp and it's not really a direct comp, what can you do to be able to become informed and and data driven enough to be able to confidently make a recommendation? I kind of want to focus a little bit more with with the whiskey vest, right? Where do you want to see that go? Is this kind of going to be like a similar um, setup to Vino Vest? Or do you feel like maybe now that you have like a sec the second class, there are some different things that you can do with you know the user experience or even the investments themselves? Yeah, great question. So it's it's really going to be seamless and feel a lot like the VinoVest platform. So we'll have one login, multiple portfolios. We can be able to view wine and whiskey, wine or whiskey, up to you, and having the same sort of guarantees and assurances around insurance, around authenticity, around condition. Uh, to make sure that that asset is, is safe and always yours. Yeah. And at the moment, when do you anticipate maybe launching that? I would say this is something that we'd like to do next year. Not really sure what the timeline um, would be there. One more question here, Anthony. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about your team and, and what, what you've built, right? Because like we discussed earlier, you have this, uh, it's, you're operating on a multinational level, right? What is the breadth and scope of your team right now? What does it take to run a VinoVest? Yeah, we're really lucky to be a globally decentralized company. Even before the, the pandemic hit, my co-founder and I, Brent, we, we were like, hey, we want to just build a real company from, from the core. So it's in our DNA. 
that's also enabled us to hire incredible individuals from, from all walks of life, from all places, countries, states, all different time zones, which I think has really helped us be able to grow our expertise now that we have coverage in Asia, in Europe, you know, in the Americas, and we're able to have that sort of global coverage because wine is global, right? Wine is grown in different places, stored in different places. Our customer base lives in different places, and we want to be able to accommodate that and in the best way that we can. And with that, I, I kind of want to add on something because you're good at this. I know you are. What would be your pitch for a potential investor who's looking at wine as, a, as an investment and then specifically at, at VinoVest as, as the platform to go to for those investments? Yeah, I mean, I would say if you're looking to diversify into something that's uncorrelated with the market, that's, I think, the first decision, right? And I think number two is looking at your time horizon. If you are looking for something that is around, I'd say, at least three to seven years at the minimum, then wine could probably be a good asset for you in your portfolio. And then when it comes to actually managing the asset, Vinovest is really the place to do it because we do everything for you. You have the flexibility of being able to check on your smartphone like like it was your Robinhood or Schwab account, uh, but you also have the flexibility of being uh, being a wine drinker. You know, you own that tangible asset, I think. Especially in, in these sort of inflationary days, this is especially important to be able to have that sort of hard asset as a part of your portfolio. Awesome. Andy, thank you for sharing your story. I know you, uh, your background and for talking about uh, VinoVest. Um, really incredible. You know, um, when, I, when I first heard about your company and you, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And uh, then, then maybe a couple of weeks later, I come, come to find out more about, you know, uh, kind of some of the adversity that you faced. And uh, I was like, wow, okay. There's another layer there. So I just want to thank you for sharing that. It speaks volume, right? Volumes about, I guess, the depths you would take to go and, and, and work something out and, and kind of not let something fail and to, and to continue working and, and persevering. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very much so. Learn, learn to be an open book through my journey, um, through, through tough times and through good times. So I appreciate you giving me the chance to speak about it too. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I'm sure it's going to be our, our listeners' pleasure. Hopefully, we can have you back soon uh, at some point uh, in the coming months and kind of get an update, maybe even talk a little bit more about when, if Whiskey Vest is, is live. Absolutely. Well, uh, thanks again. I enjoyed the chat, Horatio, and hopefully we can do this again soon as well. Absolutely. Take care, Anthony.